chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. If you were not with us last week, we started a new book, a uh, book of 1 Timothy. And as always, when we start a new book, we like to go over the theme of the book to make sure that you have an understanding of what it is and what the book is about. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 actually gives us the theme and the purpose here of Timothy. It's verses 14 and 15 right there in 1 Timothy 3. It says, These things I write to you that I, oh, I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. First Timothy is a book written to the church to tell the church this is how it's supposed to work. This is how it's supposed to come together. And last week we did a big introduction on this. We won't go through all the points, but back in Acts chapter 2, where the church first appeared, the idea of the church, of believers coming together, they talked about how the purpose of it was to have a time of uh, fellowship, a time of prayer, a time of getting into God's Word, that time of the church coming together. And we also talked about the elements of worship and the importance of witnessing. So often as church, we think the purpose is just to come here, hear the worship, hear the message, have some fellowship, have some fun, and then just go out and come back again in a week. No, the purpose of church is to come, to be edified, to be built up, to be spiritually encouraged, give you an opportunity of worship, give you an opportunity to serve, give you an opportunity to have that fellowship, and then you go back out into the world to where you work and to your families and make a difference for Christ. That's the purpose of the church, is to build us up, to send us out, to be missionaries where we work and where we live with what we do. So 1 Timothy is written with that mindset of this is what we're supposed to be doing, how the church is supposed to work. But that being said, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment is love, from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. That word there in verse 3, that charge you, that word literally means command. Paul is saying, Timothy, that you have to command people, verse 3, that they teach no other doctrine. You realize how rampant false teaching is. It's all over the place. False teaching is everywhere. And Paul says that we have to be careful because this is one of the ways that the church gets hurt and the church gets hit is by false teaching. People look up and they see somebody standing behind a pulpit, that they have a Bible, they're on TV, they're on the radio. Well, they must obviously be right. We have to be discerners of God's Word and know what the Bible says and what truth is. Now, some other passages that I want to share with you on this. In the book of Jude, when Jude wrote his epistle, one of the first things he wrote is that he wanted to remind the church that they're supposed to, as he said, contend earnestly for the faith. That phrase, contend earnestly for the faith, is actually a gladiator term. It means they're supposed to fight fiercely. They're supposed to fight for the truth of what is right, of the gospel, of what God says. Too often as Christians, we don't fight for the truth. It is a fight. It's a war. Look here at verse 18 of the same chapter, chapter 1. This charge, once again, this command, I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. It's a fight. And the reason it's a fight is because this false teaching just keeps creeping in again and again and again. Turn, if you will, to Acts chapter 20, please. Acts chapter 20. Paul mentioned Ephesus there in uh, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. In Acts chapter 20, we see the message that he gave to the pastors, to the elders at Ephesus. And what did he tell them? Acts chapter 20. Acts 20 says in verse uh, 27, For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul says, verse 27, I'm going to give you the whole counsel of God. Now that's why part of the reasons that out here at Harvest Fellowship, you know, one of the things I've always loved about it is uh, the Calvary Chapel way of going verse by verse, book by book through the Bible. And as we talked about last week, it's not that we're opposed to topicals. We do topicals when the Lord leads. But the best way to get God's word is to go book by book, verse by verse, the whole counsel of God. So often someone will come up to me and say, hey, you need to teach on this. And I usually tell them, you know what, part of the beauty, beauty of going book by book, verse by verse through the Bible is eventually that topic is going to come up. Because when you do every verse, it's going to come up. Part of that is you get to cover everything, which is both good and bad. Take First Timothy, for example. There's some tough teachings coming up. If I was doing topicals, I'd skip them. <laughs> you know, it'd be easier. Problem is you can't, and that's part of the beauty of getting God's word is you get the whole counsel of God. Well, Paul says, be careful, because he says, look at verse 29 of uh, Acts 20. Savage wolves will come in. Boy, false teaching, once again, is rampant. It's out there. It's all over the place. It's everywhere everywhere. And look what he also said here too in verse uh, 30. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up. You got to worry about what's on the outside and you also got to worry about what's on the inside. Some of the greatest damage I've ever seen done to the church is from people within the church that start spreading their little ideologies and their little opinions on theology and doctrine. And God says you have to be careful and to warn and to watch out. And what's the best way to know the truth? The best way to know the truth is to study the truth. Look in 2 Timothy chapter 3, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Great passage there. This is what uh, one of those refrigerator verses. And if you have little kids at home, this is a great passage for that. 2 Timothy 3. Let's go ahead and start in um, verse 14. Actually, start in verse 13. It says, Evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Don't we see that all the time? Verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, the goal of the church is to make sure that, verse 17, you're complete as a man or woman of God. We want you to have an understanding of God's truth, God's word, so that way when you go out and shine for Christ, you know what the Lord is leading you to do. Remember the two W's. We say this all the time. God has called you to worship. God has called you to witness. That is what God has called you to do. And the way you understand what God wants is by studying out the scriptures. So that way you know what truth is. And you're complete, as it says in verse 17. I, I've heard this before through numerous ways, and, I, and I'm assuming this is true. But what I've been told is that people that work in forgery, especially with currency, that they don't study the fake examples, the forgeries, to see what it is. They study the real money, so that way when they see a fake, they can pick it out because they know what the real money is supposed to look like. Well, the same thing happens with biblical truth. When you study out the truth of scriptures, fake, false teaching, you know it's wrong. Because you know the truth. Just yesterday, someone said the rapture was going to happen, right? So, you know what? He said it was going to happen. Now, that came up, sounded good, sounded right. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour. Well, if the Bible tells me that no one knows the day or the hour, and a guy comes to me and tells me that he knows the day and the hour, now that either means that God is wrong or he is wrong. Now I'm going to err on the side of God, that God knows what's going on. So therefore, knowing the truth of the Scripture, since God says that no one knows the day or the hour of my return, if someone says he does know it, then that can't be true. It's not because I'm smarter than that guy. It's not because I have a degree in theology. 
No, just because the Bible says no one knows the day or the hour. Take another one that pops up all the time, this idea of Jesus being married. This pops up every few years. A movie comes out, a book comes out, and Jesus being married. Well, do we know if Jesus was married? People come say, well, you know, Mary Magdalene and uh, supposedly this and that. Well, if you know the Bible, the Bible already tells us. Was Jesus married? Yes. We're the body of Christ. So therefore, as the body of Christ, the Bible actually says we as the body are the bride of Christ. So when someone comes up and says, well, Jesus married, I say, well, yeah, he is. He's married to us. Because the Bible tells us that's the truth. Now, how do we know that? Because we study out the scriptures. And as you study out truth, you know then what is false. False stuff is popping up all the time. Stay in 1 Timothy. Just look at uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Guys, it's out there. The best thing you could do is if you have little ones at home is ingrain the scriptures into them. The best thing you could do just as a believer is to be in God's word on a regular basis. When you're in the truth, God honors that and you will then know what is false. And if you're asking what is truth, if you remember this point from before, there's three elements of truth in the Bible. The Bible says that Jesus is truth. The Bible says Holy Spirit is truth. And the Bible says the word is truth. Think how simple that is. If you stick to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, and to the word, you're not going to go wrong. It's when you get off those things. It's when you get off the Bible. When you don't listen to the Spirit. When you start making compromises on Christ, all of a sudden, there's no longer truth. So you have to stick to those three things. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God's Word. And you will know truth, and you'll be able to fight that false doctrine. If you want a little further study, I encourage you. 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2 is a chapter devoted to false teaching where God says, this is what I think about it. One thing that God does not like he does not like it when someone comes in and tries to hurt his children. He does not like that. He wants to protect you, and the way he protects you is he's given you the Word, he's given you the Holy Spirit. And so when someone comes in and twice tries to twist doctrine and truth, God does not like that. He wants us to be protected in his Word. So now that we have that, let's move on right here. Look at the, then verse 4. If we have the truth of God's Word... We're not going to do verse 4, give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in the faith. God says you're not going to let the little things get to you. Let's just be honest. How often do we allow meaningless, senseless, pointless arguments to get the best of us? Look back over the times that you've gotten frustrated with things. How many of them were really worth it? Some of them are, yes. But a lot of stuff we just need to let go. Paul says to Timothy, those dumb arguments let go. And he builds on this. You don't have to turn there, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel. Then he says in the book of Titus chapter 3, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law. They are unprofitable and useless. So at least three times here, the Spirit is moving Paul to tell people, don't do dumb arguments. How often as Christians do we get worked up over stuff that does not matter in the whole scheme of eternity? I think worship should be like this. I think worship should be like that. I think the church should do this. I don't like the way that person's running that ministry. I think we should, whatever. We always have an opinion about things. God says, let it go. He goes, it's useless. It is an unprofitable, useless argument that what happens is your energy is spent fighting and debating and arguing over little things that have nothing to do in the whole scheme of eternity while there's a world out there dying and going to hell. But too often as Christians, we get caught up in those little things. And God says, let it go. Don't allow the little things to become big things. Don't fight over little dumb things. It is not worth it. We just got to let it go. What are we supposed to have? What's our true actions? Well, verse 5 shows us what our true actions are supposed to be. Look at these adjectives. We're supposed to have a pure heart, a good conscience, Sincere faith, 
Look at that. Good, pure, and sincere. Now, how is the only way that you can have a pure heart? You've got to be born again. Your heart's wicked. My heart is wicked. We are sinners. We're sinners by choice. We're sinners by genealogy. We're sinners by birth. Anybody that's ever had little kids, you just need to look at them. You know they're sinners. They act like sinners. They fight. They argue. God says that sin problem has to be dealt with. That heart needs to be made pure. The only way that heart can be made pure is through Christ Jesus. That's why we have to be made a new person. My heart's wicked. The only way I can have a clean heart is to have a pure heart is through God. And when I have that pure heart, I also have a good conscience. I also have a sincere faith. I've heard a lot of times here recently where people talk about church and why it's hard to go to church because the church is full of hypocrites. The church is full of hypocrites. I'll tell you that right now. I'll tell you right now I'm the biggest hypocrite here because I'm the one standing behind the pulpit saying, do this, do that, pray this, pray that. I'm still trying to figure this stuff out. But you know what? I hopefully believe that my faith tries to be sincere. Lord, I'm not perfect. Lord, I want to be an example for you in all that I say. And how does that faith come? It comes from a good conscience, which comes ultimately from a pure heart that's been made right in Christ. See, the only way it can be made right is from that pure heart. Too often I see people try to fix their lives, fix their marriage, fix their whatever. Their heart's not right. It's a heart issue. I don't know how many times I've said that recently. It's a heart issue. Until the heart gets right, nothing else is going to get right. You can discipline, you can set rules, you can set parameters, but it's the heart that needs to be made right, and the heart's only made right in the Lord. So Paul says we have to have that pure heart. What's the flip side of that? We see what salvation is supposed to be in verse 5, pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith. What's the flip side? Verse 6, from which some having strayed, having turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, and for manslayers, for fornicators, for sodomites, for kidnappers, for liars, for perjurers, if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. Paul says, here's the flip side. What's the opposite of a pure heart, good conscience, sincere faith? Look at these descriptions. Look at verse 6. Having straight, having turned aside to idle talk. Ooh. And here's a scary verse. Matthew 12, verse 36 says that we will give account for every idle word that we have spoken. Boy, we say a lot of idle words, don't we? We have a lot of time where we have conversations that should just never happen. But we still have them, don't we? I said at the first service that the person that is most guilty of bringing me down in idle talk is my wife. And I wasn't saying it as a joke because the person that's most guilty of bringing down Dawn with idle talk is me. There are things that I'll say to Dawn and Dawn will say to me that we would never say to anybody else. We would never have a conversation with somebody else, but yet I know what it's like. I've been in your spot. We have a lot of idle talk, don't we, as, as husband and wife? You leave something, it's like, well, what'd you think? <laughs> I didn't like what they did there. I didn't like that. Now, that one was okay. We always have our opinions. We always share, and we think that we're sharing them in the bounds of marriage between husband and wife, that therefore it's not considered idle talk. Sometimes as spouses, we are very guilty of this. And we need to say, you know what, as brothers and sisters in the Lord, we've got to watch what we say to each other too. Because that idle talk, that idle talk of just meaningless conversations generally leads to what? Well, it leads to opinions, which then leads to bitterness, which then leads to, well, I think this and I think that, which then leads to gossip, where God just says, don't have the conversations. They're idle, meaningless talk that just should not happen. And what happens is when there's many, many words... It leads to many, many problems. God says we need to keep those things inside. Don and I have these little phrases that we use at home, and we have what we call inside thoughts and outside thoughts. Don't share the inside thoughts. Those stay between you and the Lord. When you share an inside thought, it usually leads to outside problems. So keep it simple, and we've got to watch what we say there. Look at the next one here, a trait that's not 
of the born again is verse 7. Teachers. Teachers teaching something that they don't understand. How many times have we seen that? People teaching that they don't even fully grasp and understand what they're doing, but yet they like that air of spiritual authority. They like that air of, I know what I'm doing, everybody look at me. God says, no, it's not about you. It's about the Lord. And so then it moves on to this great point, is the purpose of the law. The law is good, verse 8, if one uses it lawfully. Know this, though, the law is not made for the righteous person, but the lawless and insubordinate. The purpose of the Old Testament law was very simple. The purpose of the Old Testament law was for you to live your life, look at yourself in the spiritual mirror and say, I can't do this. Lord, I can't follow all these rules and regulations. It's impossible. And God was then sat up in heaven saying, yeah, I know, that's why I sent Christ. The purpose of the law, according to Romans, was to show us that we are sinners. So therefore, now that we know we're sinners, we then go to Christ to try to be made right in him. Well, what about the law today? The law is there for those that want to be unlawful. I don't need a law telling me it's wrong to kill somebody. I don't need to know that. I already know that's wrong. I don't need a law saying if I'm short on money, I don't go rob a bank. I don't need that. Those laws are there for people that want to do those things. And so what Paul is trying to say here is these laws to not steal, to not cheat, to not murder, is because their heart has not been made right, their heart is not pure, Go back to verse 5, a pure heart. So therefore, since their heart is not pure, we need these laws, these rules and regulations to say this is wrong. It's very sad, but as born-again Christians, we shouldn't have to be told that certain things are wrong because our conscience that has been made right in Christ should tell us, hey, God doesn't want me to do that. That item is wrong, and so since that is wrong, I don't want to do it. Why? Because of verse 11, I have the glorious gospel. Love that word there, glorious gospel. And the reason I have the glorious gospel is because I have a pure heart in verse 5 because I've been born again. I'm not saying that we don't need rules and regulations, but as a born-again believer, we have the Holy Spirit that lives inside of our heart that tells us right from wrong. And I don't know how many times I've shared this with you. When someone comes into my office and says, hey, I don't know what I should do, they lay out their problem. The first question is, says, what do you think you should do? Almost every time they know what they should do the Holy Spirit lives inside and says this is right, this is wrong, because the Holy Spirit is truth. We have these rules and regulations because there's people that don't believe in truth. God says you're born again, you're different, you have truth. Here's the problem though, people reject it. Turn if you will to verse 18, because we covered verses 12 through 17 last week. Jump ahead to verse 18. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now this really hit me. Verse 19, some have rejected the faith. I remember when I first got saved, and I would tell everybody I met about Christ. And every time I would tell something about the Lord, they would either be very willing to receive it, or they at least would say, oh, okay, I agree, you know, I'm a believer. Or, yep, I, you know, some type of little token phrase to send me on my way. But I remember I was sharing the Lord with somebody one time, and he rejected it. None of this, oh, I believe, or I'm going to church, or all, whatever. He just flat out said, I don't want it. I didn't know what to do. Never met somebody who rejected. And, and you look at it, it's like, why would somebody reject? As a new Christian, it was just so mind-blowing to me. This is salvation. This is Jesus. This is what saves you from hell. Why would you reject this? But here, when Paul's writing to Timothy, he says in verse 19, some are going to reject, and look at the word he uses to describe the rejection, a shipwreck, verse 19. Isn't that just the best word to describe someone who chooses to not follow Christ? Their life becomes a shipwreck. It just does. And God says that's the warning to them, that their life becomes that type of shipwreck 
and it just becomes a mess because they choose not to follow the Lord. And God says, I'm warning you with that. See, but here's the problem with that idea. You go up to some people sometime and you tell them, hey, you need Christ. Why do I need Christ? Because you have an emptiness in your life. You have a depression in your life. Your life is not where it wants to be. Your life is on a path that you don't want it to go. And your life is going to shipwreck. Sometimes they'll look at you and say, no, I like my life. I think I have a good life. I have a good marriage, maybe. I have a good family. I have a good job. I got a good income. I have no problems with my life. So then you walk away saying, well, I guess they don't need Jesus. No. Some people come to Christ because their life is a shipwreck. And they stop and they say, this is not what I want. Lord, help me. But there's also some people that think they got a pretty good life. They don't really need God. Things are going good. God's that crutch thing when I have a hard time, when I have a surgery, when I have a problem, then I'll get right with God. That's where you also have to go the other road here too, is they need the Lord because there's idea of shipwreck of spiritual sin. That person may have the great life, the great wife, the great family, the great job, the great everything, but you know what? There's still a sin problem that needs to be dealt with in their heart. And so therefore, they need to be reminded, just as we read in the previous verses there, those laws that we break, God's commands, lead to sin, which those sin then leads us to a dark heart that needs to be made clean. It's dirty. It's wicked. It needs to be made right in God. And they, for need to know that. So their life may not be a shipwreck of emotion, but their life is a shipwreck of sin. And they've rejected that. So what happens when you tell it to them and they still don't want it? Verse 20, of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. What happens when they don't want the truth and you've tried and they've rejected? You deliver them to Satan. Now some of you are like, now that I like. I got a whole prayer request list of people I can deliver to Satan. That's not exactly what it's trying to say. What it's trying to say is you have done your part. You have tried to be a witness in truth. They have rejected what you have to say. So therefore you step back and you let go and you give it to God. Saying, Lord, what else do you want me to do here? See, I always used to think that one more phone call, one more card, one more contact, and that person will get it figured out. I have reached the point now where I realize sometimes i got to step back and say, Lord, it's between you and them. I have to deliver them over to you, and as I deliver them over to you, Lord, I know that you know what's best. I will be there to love them. I will be there to help them. But ultimately, they are in your hands. Now, what did Hymenaeus and Alexander do to cause this for Paul to say, hey, i got to let go of them? Well, Hymenaeus, according to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, he denied the resurrection. And even though he denied the resurrection, he just didn't stop there. He went around and told everybody else and tried to bring the body down. As we told you earlier in the lesson, God does not like it when someone tries to hurt his kids spiritually. So Paul says, hey, this guy's not willing to listen to the truth. I'm letting go of him. Alexander, we don't know exactly what Alexander did, but according to 2 Timothy chapter 2 also, he did a lot of harm to people, especially Paul. So Paul said, hey, this guy's causing problems, this guy's causing harm. I need to back away from him and give him over to the Lord. That's the best thing to do. Now, that's got to be tough. My personal opinion, take it or leave it, personal opinion, I think with Alexander there may have been something a little personal there between him and Paul. Because Paul said Alexander also did me much harm. you got somebody in your life that's hurt you. I mean, it's done you harm. And they have just been such a, a difficult person in your life. They have caused you spiritual, emotional pain and suffering. God says sometimes you need to let go and give them over to him. And because God says it's in my hands. See, Hebrews 10, verse 30. Hebrews 10, 30 says, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God says, you let them come to me and I will take care of them. See, but too often in our society, we think God is too slow when it comes to judgment. God, you're not moving quick enough to make them suffer pain for what they did to me. But God says, in grace and mercy, I give them that. Hopefully that they'll come around. See, the thing is, I want people 
that have hurt me to feel that pain right away. So therefore, I usually take judgment into my own hands. Because if I give more to the Lord, God's not going to move quick enough. God says, you have to trust me that I will take care of it. And you know, the thing is, some of you sitting here today, you've caused hurt and pain on other people. Aren't you thankful that God had grace and mercy on you? Aren't you thankful that he just didn't strike you down right away when somebody was mad at you and upset at you? God had mercy on us, so therefore he has mercy on other people. So what are we supposed to do, though, when we have these people that were trying to fight the good fight? Verse 19, their life is a shipwreck. They're causing harm. We give them over to the Lord. What are we supposed to do? Just let it go? God says there's two things you're supposed to do. You're supposed to pray and give them Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men. A couple of key words there. Verse 1, all men. Who do you pray for? You pray for everybody, even the people that hurt you. See, so often when we look in the Bible, we finish chapter 1 and we stop. Then we go to chapter 2. Look how the context comes together. Look in verse 19, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning faith, have shipped, suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I deliver to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Look at the context. It's one continuous thought. These people have caused harm in verse 20. Verse 1 of chapter 2 says, we've got to pray for them. That's what it says. We've got to pray for those people who are causing harm. Turn, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew chapter 5. So often when I talk to people, as you're going to Matthew 5, I always ask them, how are you doing spiritually? First thing everybody says, well, I pray. I always pray for my kids. I always pray for my family. I always pray for this. Okay, and I think that's good. Don't get me wrong. But how often do you pray for those people that are hurting you, that cause problems, that frustrate you? Look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. How often do you pray for the person that frustrates you the most? How often do you pray for that person that's caused so much pain in your life? How often have you said, Lord, they've tried to hurt me, but listen to this, but I want them to be blessed. That is difficult to do near impossible to do. But how is that possible for us to do? Because Jesus set the example. He was on the cross, and he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus set the example for us to say, hey, I'm going to pray for those people who are trying to hurt me. See, Christianity at its core, we have a pure heart like Christ, and Jesus said, I want us to pray for those that are causing pain to us. Matthew 5, 43 through uh, 44 there says, pray for those people. We're supposed to pray for all men. If you have somebody in your life that is causing that much hurt and pain, and it's hard for you to get over it, have you prayed for them? Have you prayed for that frustrating person? Have you prayed for that co-worker that you can't stand? Have you prayed for that family member that just makes always things difficult? Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's somebody in the body that's caused so much hurt. Do we pray for them? Yeah, I'll pray for them. I'll pray to give them over to Satan. No, pray for them. Just as it said there in Matthew 5, Lord, bless them, help them, soften their heart. We're supposed to be praying for all men. Look at the next one, verse 2. For kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Boy, Christians, verse 2, we fail in this area. Too often as Christians, instead of praying for our governmental leaders, we're criticizing them. Too often as Christians, instead of praying for them, we're complaining about them. I have heard Christians say some horrible, awful, ungodly things about people in political power that they disagree with. Don't you find it fascinating that through the Spirit, Paul wrote that you're also supposed to pray for kings and all who are in authority. Listen, I don't agree with everything that happens in this nation, and there's a lot of political things that I would do differently that I know God wants to be done differently, but God also says we need to lift those people up in prayer. Look at the context once again. 
Verse 20, these are people that are causing problems. Verse 1, you pray for all people. All people also includes verse 2, the government officials that we may disagree with. Lord, speak to their hearts truth. Speak to their hearts salvation. Speak to their hearts godly wisdom. As Christians, we've got to be careful. It goes back to that verse we talked about earlier in chapter 1. We have too much idle talk. We have a lot of idle talk about politics where God says, how much are you praying for them? We just think about that with anything in life. How quick are we to complain about fill in the blank? complain about an area at church, to complain about an area at work, to complain about a coworker, to complain about politics. We are so quick to complain and get angry and frustrated and bitter. God says, have you prayed about it? Have you prayed? See, he says, pray about it first. Give it over to the Lord. And look at the example of this in verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. See, God says it's a good thing to pray for all those people instead of having a gossip session, an idle talk session, a complaining session, a bitter session about it. Pray for them. That's what God wants. It's a good thing to step back and plant seeds and say, Lord, you deal with it. And why do we do that? Because of verse 4, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God loves sinners. He just does. And so since God loves sinners, he has a desire for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. How often do we get this backwards? That we have this picture of God up in heaven laughing when someone dies and goes to hell. God has this joy in seeing people suffer. No, he desires all men to be saved. All men, even those men you don't like. He desires all of them to be saved. Turn your will to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 18. These are verses that a lot of us know and we've, we've done a lot, but they're good to go. Mark them, underline them, and remember them because it's going to come up. You're going to run into a coworker, a friend, a family member, a student at school, where they're going to say, well, God, well, why would I want to follow God? God just fill in the blank. Well, if God is such a God of love, why does he send people to hell? If God is such a God of love, why does he allow this type of stuff to happen? Well, we just read there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, desires all men to be saved. 2 Peter 3.9 Peter 3, 9 says that God wishes that none should perish, that all should come to salvation. Look here at Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18, and let's look at uh, verse 30. Ezekiel 18, verse 30. It says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Born again to your heart. For why should you die, O Israel? Look at verse 32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Stay in Ezekiel and jump ahead to chapter 33, please. Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33. Look at verse 11. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? God says, I don't want to send anybody to hell. I don't want anybody to reject the truth. I want people to be saved. That's God's heart. He has a heart for everybody to be saved. So since he has a heart for everybody to be saved, do we have that same mindset? Let's bring this full circle here. See, we talked about last week that the purpose of the church was to see souls get saved. The purpose of the church is not for us to come and get fat spiritually and just sit here and have a great time. There's nothing wrong with fun. There's nothing wrong with fellowship. We give opportunities for that. But at the same time, the purpose we are here on this earth is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've made abundantly clear, if we are not witnessing and sharing the gospel, we're going to feel an emptiness inside of us saying, what is the point of all this? And it's not always hardcore evangelism of get saved or go to hell. Sometimes it's just, hey, man, I'm praying for you. 
Or, hey, man, why don't you come to church? Or, you know what, why don't you do this? Or, I'm going to pray for you, encourage you, hear some scriptures. It's just planting seeds and trusting that God is moving and working even when we don't see it. Because God desires all men to be saved. And look at verse 4 one more time of 1 Timothy chapter 2. And come to the knowledge of the truth. What's the truth? I've already said the truth is Jesus, the truth is the Holy Spirit, and the truth is God's word. Look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. To me, this is one of the simplest points of Christianity, but I don't understand how it keeps being debated. There's only one way to get to heaven, that's Christ. But we're Christians. So as Christians, we have the word Christ, which means that we follow Christ. If we follow Christ, the teachings of Christ say that... He's the only way to get to heaven. For someone to be a Christian and say, I believe there's numerous ways to get to heaven, it's not all through Jesus, they're missing the point of what it means to be a Christian. (laughs) Because a Christian follows Christ. And he makes it abundantly clear in verse 5, there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I've shared this story before, but it bears repeating. I remember years ago watching a uh, television show, one of those shows where they had all the different pundits on, and there's everybody that had a different opinion. And they had the one Christian guy. But generally, they always have the token Christian guy. And to be honest, sometimes he's not good. This is a good Christian guy. This guy was solid. And they were talking about salvation. And he came out and he said, you know what? There's only one way to get to heaven. And he said, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He goes, no one comes to the Father but by them. And then the other pundits on the show looked at him and said, I don't think Jesus would like you saying that. And I'm thinking, he just quoted Jesus. Jesus is the one that said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If Jesus said, I'm the only way to have salvation and go to God the Father, then why do we debate that and argue that? One of my analogies I like to use is take the church here. Harvest Fellowship is located on State Route 109. To get to this church, you have to get on State Route 109. Now, I used this example at the first service, and I had some people that came and said, well, I'll just drive through the mud. I'll just land a helicopter. Most people aren't saved. That's what it comes down to. My analogy works. Church is on State Route 109. If you want to get to Harvest, you have to get on State Route 109. Be it coming from Ottawa, or you came from Macomb, or you came from Lipstick, you came from Holgate, Ham, I don't know where you came from. You eventually had to get on 109. Now, I came Road F. Eventually, I had to turn on 109. Some of you came 18. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. 109 is Jesus Christ. If you want salvation, you have to get on 109 in that sense. You can't go on a different road. So Jesus is the only way. If you want to be saved, you eventually have to get to Jesus Christ. Now, the path that you take to Christ could be totally different than everybody else's path. You may have grown up in a Christian home. You may have heard the gospel from the beginning, and so therefore you accepted Christ in an early age. Amen. That's the best testimony. Some of you may have had a long, hard, bumpy road, and you went all over the place to get to 109, Jesus Christ. I don't know. But the point is, you eventually had to come to Christ, and Christ is salvation. Hence, verse 5, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. This does not make us egotistical. This does not make us cocky. We just know the truth. Why don't we as Christians proclaim this truth more often? Because to make a statement like that means that you just offended about 5.5 billion people. Because when we say it's only Jesus, that means we're saying it's only Jesus. Well, there's a lot of groups that don't like to hear that. But the truth of the matter is it's Christ. If I'm telling somebody how to get to Harvest Fellowship, they have to get on 109. (laughs) There's no other way. If I'm telling somebody about the salvation of heaven, I can't say, well, you know what? Just search and find your own path. The path is Jesus Christ. I find this easy. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is out of 2 Corinthians where it talks about the simplicity of Jesus. Aren't you glad it's just Jesus and just him alone? How simple is that? 
You want to be saved? Understand what Christ did on the cross. Well, what did he do on the cross? Look at verse 6. He gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. A ransom. We had a debt we couldn't pay. Ever since I've been born, I've been racking up a debt I can't pay of sin. Every time I lie, I cheat, I steal, I put more sin into my account. Eventually, God will stop and look at me and say, James, you owe me for all this sin. Well, then I say, well, Lord, look at my good works. God says, your good works aren't good enough. You still owe me. I have a debt that can't be paid. I have a ransom that can't be paid. When Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins, he said, I will pay the debt that James owes. I will pay the ransom for James, so therefore he comes out of death into life. He has a pure heart now in God because my sin has been taken care of. That is Christianity in its simplest form, and that's what it is. But by me to say that means I am saying that there is no other way. But that's the truth of the Scriptures. Now we have to choose to accept that or reject that. Paul says that's the truth. He goes, don't water down that doctrine. This finishes up verse 7. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. See, put this all together. Back to verse 5 of chapter 1. I have a pure heart. I have a pure heart because I have the glorious gospel in verse 11 of chapter 1. Well, now Paul comes out and says, you know what? I've been saved, verse 5. Christ paid my ransom, verse 6. And so now that I'm saved, I am a preacher, I am an apostle, and I'm a teacher. How simple is that? Paul knows what he's called to do. He's a preacher, he's an apostle, he's a teacher. One of our little sayings out here that we like to say is, know where you're called and go where you're called. Simple. Know what God wants you to do, then go do it. Paul knows that he's called to be a preacher, he's called to be a teacher, and he's called to be an apostle. See, the purpose of the church is for you to know where you're called to serve, and as you serve, that takes you deeper in your walk with the Lord. This is not a message to say, hey, we need people to clean the church, hey, we need help in the back, we need help with the VBS. No. This is to say, I want what's best for you, and what's best for you spiritually is to find out where God has called you to serve and then to serve. Because until you are serving the body of Christ in Christ Jesus, there will always be an element of your Christian walk which is weak, and you'll feel a little empty. Of Lord, why? Why am I here? Because God has called you to serve. You have a purpose where he wants you to serve to bless the body of Christ. Alan, if you could bring up those um, quotes. i got two quotes here that I want to finish with that I thought were uh, pretty neat. Take a look at this. This is a quote that we've shared numerous times out here before, but I want you to see it. It says, In subtle ways, the church has historically encouraged the idea that there are some who hold special claim to the title minister. The New Testament teaches that every member is a minister. The term should never be limited to one particular group of ministers, or perhaps more appropriately called pastors. Next slide, please. It follows that if every member is a minister, every member has a ministry. The body of Christ will never know how great its potential ministry effectiveness can be until all its members are functioning in their own areas of ministry. Minister just means servant. So if we're all ministers, that means we all have a service that we can do to the body of Christ. And I encourage you, Paul knew what his was. He's a preacher, he's a teacher, he's an apostle. He knows where he's supposed to serve. He knows where God has called him. I encourage you to stop and say, how can I serve the Lord? Where is my ministry? How has God called me to be a minister? If you don't know, come talk to us. We'll show you all the different areas out here we can get involved, and we'll pray and see if the Lord leads. One more quote here real quick. As long as I dwell on my own qualities and traits and think about what I am suited for, I will never hear the call of God. The majority of us cannot hear anything but ourselves, and we cannot hear anything God says. But to be brought to the place where we can hear the call of God is to be profoundly changed. See, that's the truth. As long as I dwell on my own qualities and traits and think about what I'm suited for, I will never hear the call of God. Too often some of us say, well, this is what I'm good at, this is what I'm not good at. Well, because I can't serve there, I'm not called to do that. Well, how do you know? Because, well, that's not what I don't like. God may call you to some place that you don't want. <laughs> God may call you someplace that you don't like. The calling does not go through us. The calling goes through God. 
Are you going to be willing to respond to where he's called you to be? So often after a message like this, I have someone that comes up to me and says, I know what God wants me to do. Your message confirmed it, but let's just be honest. I don't want to do it. Until you give in, until you submit yourself to be a minister, a servant, in that ministry that God has called you to be, there will always be an element of your Christian walk, but you will say, I'm weak in that area. The purpose of the church is to build you up to have you go out and be lights and witnesses to the world. That's why we're here. And so we want to equip you, to give you the tools to do that. And part of what we do is we give you a time of prayer, we give you a time of fellowship, a time of worship, a time of teaching, but we also give you an opportunity to serve, to say, I want to do something that lasts for all of eternity. I want to make a difference in this world that I live in for Jesus Christ. Pray about it. See where God's leading you, and I encourage you. Get involved, and if you don't know where to get involved, you say, I don't see anything from me, come talk to me, Rich, or Renee. Trust me, there's places where the Lord's leading you, and you can pray and see where God goes. Until we're out there flexing our spiritual muscles, we're always going to feel like there's more that we can do for God. The worship team wants to come forward here for the final song. Just want to remind everybody, if you don't mind, uh, take a couple seconds.